welcome to episode 7 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur here to learn how innovators are creating outsized, transformational social impact. My next guest is someone that went the opposite direction of many guests I've had and plan to have on this show. He started as an activist and advocate, and that led him into entrepreneurship. He's one of those selfless people that is always thinking of others, and it led him on a great path. Evan Nissen is a drug policy reform advocate and founder of Nissen Co., one of the biggest PR and SEO firms in the cannabis industry, and has founded other companies as well. Evan is the youngest member of the board of Normal and involved in a variety of other great organizations. I wish I could list them all here. Evan was the very first person I was introduced to in the cannabis industry when I started to explore the opportunities there about seven years ago. Note that this was recorded in early September. Evan and I had a great talk about his journey. Here is Evan Nissen on People Are the Answer. Evan, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Thanks for having me. Definitely. It's uh, great to talk to you today. and. I'm excited to have you on this podcast about people that are coming up with answers to the various issues that we have in the world. And, um, you know, you came to mind early when I was coming up with this concept, you know, having been uh, one of the very first people I met in the cannabis industry when I got involved six or seven years ago. And, you know, I was hoping that you could just kind of tell us how you got where you are. Sure. Yeah, appreciate it again. Um, so I started in college um, as an advocate working on drug policy laws, uh, including cannabis legalization, medical marijuana, um, because it was a pretty obvious need for me in terms of or pretty obvious need to me. Um, I was seeing my friends get arrested. Um, I got drug tested myself in high school. Um, I realized that cannabis itself isn't a big deal. Um, uh, also, uh, one of the things that made me realize is actually my economics class, you know, which I can get into, um, showed me like the actual drug trade, like the economics of drug trade, and just made me realize that this was such an important issue that had so many uh, different sort of um, limbs, you know, and so many different intersections that I got involved um, working on drug policy at first in college. Uh, and then I worked my way up sort of the nonprofit advocacy ranks um, in the drug policy and cannabis legalization world. Uh, and then I used my skills that I learned there um, to start businesses that uh, have similar missions to the nonprofits. Love it. Yeah. I mean, I think that business is a very powerful vehicle for change. And you, you know, found that out. And, you know, many entrepreneurs, myself included, get into politics as they learn about them through their business, but you were the opposite. You know, can, can you tell us a little bit more about how advocacy got you into business? Yeah, a part of it was simply timing, right? I was in college uh, and I didn't have as much of a need for money at the time. I was, I was allowed, to, I sort of had the freedom and flexibility to spend my time how I wanted, which was advocating. Um, and I learned my skills there, like I said, including PR, you know, now my main company is a PR firm. Um, and uh, when I got out of college, um, obviously I needed money. And I also realized that the nonprofit model is not that effective, right? Um, going out and sort of 
begging for money and then spending it and then begging for more money and then spending it uh, is not as effective as having a sustainable business model built internally. Um, so I realized, you know, it made more sense for me to start a for-profit, um, but stay involved in nonprofits. Um, and then coincidentally, uh, that happened actually. Um, I, I got hired, to, the way that it started is I got hired to lobby for a bill that I was supporting for free already, uh, for legislative lobbying. Um, and then I wound up sending that client so many reporters um, that they referred me to other clients. Um, and that's how Nissenco, my PR firm, uh, was built actually. That's great. It's uh, impressive how your you know advocacy sort of walked you into entrepreneurship and how you've actually taken that opportunity and really executed on it. You know, I imagine many people that come up more on the political science type side, um, at least in practice, might have some trouble uh, monetizing their efforts. And um, you know, I commend the way that you've been able to do it. And uh, you know, can you talk about how your impactful missions for these businesses have allowed you to still focus on, you know, the work that matters? Yeah, I have a underlying top level mission statement, but I try to um, do things that is encompassed within that, which is to build and maintain power, right? Or people don't like the word power, so social influence, <laughs> um, but build and maintain social influence or power to change the things that I want to change and then monetize that influence uh, how I can ethically. Um, that's so great. that's what we try to do. Um, not everything I do is perfectly within that, um, but I try to stick to that as much as possible and then you know, build out a network of organizations and nonprofits and, and for-profits um, with that in mind. Got it. Well, you know, normally this is the moment at which I'd ask a little bit more about your entrepreneurial journey, but I'm curious to go first into some of the advocacy work. Um, you know, can you talk about just your journey through cannabis advocacy, um, you know, and joining the board of normal and all your work in New Jersey and elsewhere? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think for a lot of us, it started initially, I mean, I, as a policy thing for sure, but also as sort of an anti-authority thing, right? So I graduated high school. Um, I, I always thought since I was a child, how cool it would be to like be involved in the lawmaking process, right? That was something I always thought would be very cool. Um, uh, and after I graduated high school, you know, I started smoking weed basically, um, right afterwards. And, uh, when I was back for winter break for my, after my first semester of college, I was on Wikipedia, uh, for my, just looking at my hometown, you know, I was probably high, honestly, just like looking online. Um, and I saw that some towns in uh, New Jersey have ballot initiatives. Um, and previously, everyone said that the, like the reason that New Jersey can't legalize cannabis or medical marijuana at the time was because they didn't have ballot initiatives. There was no ballot initiatives on the state level in most East Coast states. That's a West Coast thing for the most part, with some exceptions, obviously, like Massachusetts. Um, and I realized I found out you know, and I confirmed through my local um, city attorney that this was indeed true, that you can on the local level do this. Um, so I decided I wanted to do it. I realized you needed about 700 valid signatures and my graduating class was 750. So I was like, oh, I could just do cannabis and get all my, <laughs> my class to sign this and we can stop arrest. Obviously it was not that easy at all, um, but that's what started me on the path. 
So I started, you know, basically that's what got me started was the local ballot initiative, um, which failed in both my town and the town next to me. And it didn't fail to uh, with the voters. It just failed to get on the ballot because of government, uh, because of police and uh, city council intimidation, basically, which I can get into. Um, but that's what started me on the path and got me connected with normal. Um, and just to and, pause you yeah. there for a second, you know, it's here, it's cool to hear, you know, kind of the one of the entrepreneurial things I always share echoed in that instance, and in that you learn as much or more from your failures than your successes. And I imagine you probably think that was the case in this instance. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, this was such a successful failure you know, in the sense that it got me going on this road um, and the fact that I thought it was going to be easier than it was um, is probably the reason that I, I was willing to walk down that path you know um, if I realized how difficult it would be I may not have done it although I, I should have but yeah that's difficult um, so that connected me to normal um, and also SSDP, because SSDP saw me in an article about that and reached out. The article said that I was doing this in New Jersey, but I went to school in Ithaca, New York. Um, so they reached out, and that's how I got involved uh, or connected to both Normal and SSDP. Um, <clears throat> and then I went out to California for an SSDP conference, my first SSDP conference um, ever, um, which is where I met the campaign manager for Prop 19, um, which was... A, camp, a California campaign in 2010 that was almost the first successful cannabis legalization campaign. Um, I met him at that, at that SSDP conference, and then they offered me you know, a job, in quotes, like an internship, basically, um, on that campaign. So I went out for the summer. I wound up taking a semester off of college to continue that campaign. Um, we got 46.5% of the vote. Um, but again, it was a failure. But um, it was a successful failure. Like when we started that campaign, we laid out in the very beginning that we would need at least $10 million to win. We probably won't be able to get $10 million. So our, you know, our first goal was to win, but our second goal was to change the narrative of the conversation from uh, if cannabis will become legal to when and how. And I do believe we succeeded in that. Um, like we were the first campaign to really start calling it cannabis, um, because which we did because of uh, message testing that we did, like actual legitimate message testing with focus groups and polling and all of that. Um, and we put out what we called non-traditional allies in front of cameras, you know, I mean, cops, judges, mothers, people that you would not traditionally think um, of as an ally to cannabis legalization, at least back then. Um, and I think that we were able to successfully change the narrative around legalization, even though uh, the, the ballot initiative didn't actually pass. What you did there in terms of leveraging these, you know, un new assets, unused assets, you know, untraditional people uh, backing up this effort, you know, you really innovated how cannabis advocacy was done. Yeah, it was definitely a communications win, for sure. Um, and there was a lot of really, really smart communications people there from traditional cannabis people like Tom Angel um, and lots of SDPers and people from MPP who you obviously work with um, and normal um, to just very, very smart political strategists from people that work in White Houses and things like that. Just really, really smart politicos um, around the room talking about messaging 
um, and we had the attention of the world, literally, I'm not exaggerating, like on election night, um, there were international um, trucks with satellites backed up for blocks. Um, we had a press conference the night of, um, I counted 30 something cameras from pretty much every country you could imagine. Um, and we were able to get that message out, which I think was good. It failed, but in terms of banging a ballot initiative, but I think you know, we succeeded in, like I said, that secondary goal. Um, and then I was bummed about that because we lost. Um, so when I went back to New York, um, I worked on uh, the Nine One Good Samaritan Overdose Prevention Law, not cannabis related, but um, it was nice because it was a semi-easy win and it was an important law. And I got one of the pens used to sign that. Um, and then, you know, continued working in New Jersey and New York um, politics and, and advocacy uh, until today. Basically, that's the advocacy side. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And, um, you know, we'd love to hear a little bit more about the entrepreneurial experience. You talked a bit about how your advocacy led you to start your PR firm, but, you know, just tell me about Nissan Co and what it is and how it's evolved. Sure. Yeah. Um, so actually, technically, the entity itself, the first client I had was a political client, not cannabis related, uh, and it was death with dignity, it and dying for the terminally ill. And I managed that campaign versus the field organizer and then eventually helped manage the campaign for a while in New Jersey. Um, so that's actually technically the first client that the entity had. Um, and then I was hired to lobby for a bill that I was supporting for free already, um, which is industrial hemp in New Jersey, um, which was technically the second client um, in that entity, but really the first, really what started Nissan Co. Um, so they hired me to lobby for a bill that I was supporting for free already, like I said, which was industrial hemp. Um, Governor Christie, who's a total jackass for anyone who remembers him, uh, vetoed it. You know, we got it to his desk and he, of course, vetoed it. Um, but that client um, kept us around because we were getting so many media mentions for them as well. Um, and then eventually we got PR tools um, and our first 30 clients or so um, were all word, but just straight up word of mouth. Some of which I think actually came from you probably, so thank you. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, we basically built from there. Um, we have a pro bono program uh, where people can apply for pro bono assistance, which we do a lot of. Um, we also have uh, a, a new uh, program where we hire formerly incarcerated people that we've been doing with Last Prisoner Project, uh, and that's been going well. Um, and I expanded you know, the, the, the for-profit stuff. Um, I have a couple of smoking vape shops that I started with a friend of mine who went to jail for cannabis. Um, so Nissan Co's pro bono program has wound up doing some really cool stuff, including um, working with Ndaba Mandela, Nelson Mandela's grandson and issues in South Africa uh, and lots of other cool things, including successful pardons, presidential pardons um, and current people currently helping promote people currently incarcerated. Um, and we also do pro bono stuff for non-cannabis people that reach out to us. Um, just like random nonprofits. So if you're a nonprofit um, or just even a non, even a for-profit doing good work, but you can't afford PR, um, definitely feel free to apply on our website. And that's nissanco.com, right? Yep. 
N is in Nancy, I, S is in Sam, O, N is in Nancy, CO Light Company.com. Great. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, I love the work that you guys are doing. I know you're, you're helping some really great organizations and companies. Um, and, you know, I can certainly endorse you guys as a client myself in various capacities. Um, but, you know, now we've gotten through some of the day-to-day -day in terms of business and nonprofit and advocacy work. Um, you know, tell me a little bit more about how you grew up and where you grow up and, you know, how you really got the foundation for your, your work and your impact. So I grew up in a pretty comfortable home. Um, my dad um, helped uh, bring a very popular uh, stock charting chart uh, to this part of the world. Um, so uh, there wasn't too much issue uh, in terms of struggle really at all. Um, I was definitely always anti-authority for sure. And my parents, um, super nice. They were never like pro-cannabis or pro-drug. Um, but my parents, but but my parents, especially my dad, um are very uh are pretty rational. So they are willing to uh be presented facts and arguments, which I think led to me. Um, sort of presenting cases a lot <laughs> to try to get my way, if that makes sense. Um, I, my parents were also, I think, one of the reasons that um, I have been able to learn a lot about a lot of things is because they were uh, very supportive of my random uh, ventures that I wanted to do or hobbies or things I wanted to learn. Like I uh, was able to take flying lessons when I was a kid and I set my basement up which I'm actually standing right now when I was younger. It was like a recording studio when I got into recording music. Um, so I was able to really like fully embrace all of my uh, interests and hobbies, which I think um, has uh, helped me in a lot of ways. Um, I think also a pretty impactful uh, part of my childhood um, was a camp that me and my cousin, who you also know, um, uh, volunteered at uh, in Maine. Uh, it was a camp for, I think it still operates actually, Camp Friendship. Uh, it was or is a camp for underprivileged people from Brooklyn who couldn't afford other camp. And we basically took them up to an island in Maine with no water, electricity. Um, and I was just like the worker there. And that, yeah, I think the part of the initial push was was my inkling for being or my desire to be involved in, in policy and the fact that I was anti-authority um, and the fact that I knew that I'd be able to make present a good case on this issue. Um, yeah, yeah. Sum it up, basically. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I mean, we were both fortunate to have great parents, you know, not everyone is and just hearing how supportive they were and how open-minded they were I know that, you know, they pushed you to be the best that you can be and gave you those opportunities that you needed. And I think that's pretty incredible. Very lucky. Yep. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot of people out there that don't have great parents and they've found ways to persevere, but, you know, talking recently on uh, the first episode with Alex Odera and Rocket Club, and he talked a bit about how parental mindset can be a big part of your child's future success. And so it's, it's great to hear that echoed in a real world example. Yeah. And I was reading studies too, that correlated 
your likelihood of being an activist with having a more intelligent father. So people with more intelligent fathers were more likely to be activists. Interesting. So do you remember as a kid, like ever arguing for silly things that you wanted and like presenting information? (laughs) Oh yeah. I'd have to think a little bit more about it, but I'm totally sure. I mean, like I mentioned, this wasn't silly, but Oh, actually trampoline. I remember that. I don't remember how I did that, but I had to present an argument for that that like talked about how it's not a hazard, you know, that safety hazard, like countering those points. Um, And like I mentioned, I took flying lessons when I was younger. I had like to put a whole PowerPoint presentation together on like the safety of airplanes and and all of that before they would let me get in one. (laughs) I love it. That's a great way to do it. (laughs) I can certainly appreciate their valuing of safety, especially now that I have a son. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you should take all this. I'm sure you are taking this consideration. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely taking notes when I ask this the questions about uh, people's parenting. So, can you tell us a story of when you really saw how your work could affect change, or you know, maybe an epiphany moment that helped you realize like this is important work? Honestly, there's been a lot of them. Um. Some of them were memorable, were not even necessarily cannabis related, you know, like with the 9-1 Good Samaritan overdose prevention law, um, like once we passed that, there was def- there was a few people that reached out to me saying they used that, which I thought was really cool. Um, that was definitely very memorable and made me realize like, you know, I, I think about this, these policies in my head, like as um, almost theoretical things, but then they're actually used, you know, obviously. Um, but when that's really made real by like people reaching out to me, um, that definitely strikes. Um, when else? I mean, the same thing with like pardons. Um, yeah, honestly, whenever you win and then that affects somebody's life, I think that to me has been you know, really big. That that's probably what comes to mind most for those. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. You know, obviously, we're both cannabis activists and drug policy reform activists. And I know, like me, throughout that process, you've certainly met plenty of patients whose, you know, quality of life, if not life as a whole, depend on their access to cannabis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And people who have benefited from the industry, you know, they've gotten out of jail or they couldn't find jobs and they got money this way and they found a job this way. yeah, there's a lot of really powerful stories because there's so much opportunity here um, that people are able to take advantage of. There's the there's both sides of like the net positive, right? There's the harm that is being reduced or hopefully eliminated, and then the new opportunities from the industry. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know, you embody something that I preach to fellow cannabis entrepreneurs is that. You know, if you're involved in this industry, it's imperative that you're involved in ad- advocacy and reform. Uh, you know, the war on drugs has obviously done tremendous damage to a variety of communities. And, um, you know, as people involved in the actual business in the legal space, you know, I think that it's our responsibility to help get people like that out of jail and get their records expunged and make sure that they still have an opportunity in life um, and that their lives don't stay ruined because the laws were wrong. Totally. And I'll even add another like level to that. I think this is probably one of the biggest opportunities 
like for capitalism broadly <laughs> to, to improve capitalism broadly uh, by setting an example that exists really anywhere. Um, this is a new industry that is born from a social movement with a lot of social equity components built in legislatively. Um, and it, it could create, it, it, I hope it is creating, um, but it definitely could create, has the potential to create um, like a sort of shining star example for other industries too. Yeah, it does. And, you know, digging in on the industry a little bit more, um, you know, I think you and I have both thought since the beginning that we were hoping this could be an industry that does set an example. And, you know, you're one of those advocates that has also been involved in business. And, you know, unfortunately, as the space starts to grow tremendously, we're just the people like us are a smaller portion of the pie in terms of who's involved. Um do you have any concern about cannabis becoming too corporate and losing any of this? Or do you think that voices like ours are enough to keep it setting this example? That's a good question. And I think time will be a big factor in that. Like, um, I think we can set it on the right course, if that makes sense. But sort of once it sets sail, it will inevitably get more and more corporate. Like, you know, consolidation happens and um, it gets more corporate by nature. Globalization is going to take effect. Um, but I think what we can do successfully, what I'm very confident we can do successfully is get it on the right path and sort of push it in the right direction. Um, and then that will, you know, have ripple effects throughout the evolution of the industry towards our side. Um, but I would be lying if I said that I think it's going to be like exactly what I want for now until forever. Or yeah. if it is, I mean, it's not even exactly what I want right now. So, Of course. Yeah. I mean, um, we can do our best to set examples and to hope that we're ingraining organizations we're working with, with, you know, these values long-term, but obviously there's only so much we can do, but hopefully many, you know, good players remain in the space. Yeah. And I'll also say, for cannabis and every other industry, our generation, millennials and younger, are demanding this. Like, I think it's going to be very, very, very difficult to run a business that doesn't have some genuine social mission when our generation is like running everything and the main decision makers and have most of the wealth in the country. Um, so you know, even if it's for self-preservation, I would say get on board because I think that this yeah. is a trend that is not going to go away based on age demographics. Right. And just for reference, when you say our generation, Evan and I are both uh, in our 30s. Let's go a little bit more personal on, you know, the cannabis and the cannabis journey. You know, I know that you're like me, someone that cannabis helps in a variety of ways. You know, would you just tell us about how you integrate cannabis into your life? Sure. Um, I mean, I use it on a regular basis. Um, you know, I, coffee and cannabis are my two favorite drugs, I would say. Um, and, you know, they've affected me on similar levels. I don't, uh, you know, I have a high enough tolerance that I don't really get stoned anymore. Um, it's just a nice uh, level of relaxation uh, for me personally. Um, it also has allowed me to like not drink at all, really. You know, I may have a few drinks a year. I have no desire to drink, um, which I think is good. It's just my preferred 
truck, frankly, like it's kind of perfect. Like I don't have to worry about it. You know, like there's, there's a mental addiction you could kind of worry about, but um, you know, there's a lot of things that I have some type of mental dependency on, including Facebook and my phone. um, And as long as it doesn't get out of hand, I'm fine with it. Um, But not having to worry about overdose or um, drug interactions too much or um, physical harmful effects. It's uh, too many of them. It's pretty phenomenal, honestly. I'm very, it, it, it impacts my life greatly. I will say that in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. And, um, you know, Seth Rogen in his new book, yearbook, he says something to the effect of some people need shoes to adapt to life and, and get around some people need cannabis to adapt to life and get around is essentially what he was saying. And, you know, I think that's certainly the case for some people and whatever it may be that someone needs to adapt to life, as long as it's helping them and not hurting others, I think it's important for people to, you know, not react to existing negative stigmas around it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and part of it is just dealing with the reality. Right? I've often compared drug laws to sex laws it feels good. People are going to do it. Drugs generally, right? How do you reduce the harms? And cannabis is the giant <laughs> like solution to a good portion of that answer. Um, just because I'm not going to say it's harmless, but it's not harmful. It's somewhere in between. Um, and all the, I'm a drug policy advocate. Um, I'm for uh, full drug decriminalization, probably full legalization of drugs. Um, but I will say cannabis is on its own level, obviously, of, of safety. Um, for sure, I'm not trying to stigmatize other drugs, but cannabis is just a safer drug. Like, it's just how it is. It's a fact. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly no reason it shouldn't be safe and regulated and tested. Um, but, you know, we don't, we could sit here all day and preach about the positives of cannabis since there's <laughs> nobody here to argue with us. So I, we won't drone on <laughs> about that for too much longer. To switch back a little bit in terms of childhood and just impact in general was, you know, any experience from your childhood or, you know, as you were growing up that showed you the importance of giving back, whether it was a situation where you were the giver or the receiver? Yeah, um, that camp that I talked about, Camp Friendship, was definitely a big one. Um, I, in my head, thought I understood what it was like being not be right like growing up in what it might be like i should say growing up in brooklyn or or in those types of like a like a bad part of brooklyn or um in poverty um actually uh like having a lot of those personal stories um in an environment like camp where you're bunking together and really getting to know everyone really really well um was definitely seriously eye-opening for me in terms of you know, the, the, that, that's probably like where I started getting really the, the concept of privilege and understanding. I wasn't thinking about it in that, by, with that word, but that's really where I started understanding like, okay, like it's way easier for me than other people. Like, I'm not just like, I'm not here because I'm like awesome. It's like, you know, I was born into this situation and they are just as smart, but they are in a shitty situation where they will, you know, have a much more difficult time getting to even where I am now. Um, so that is definitely a big part. And then also just mentors that I've had have been a big um, 
know, in terms of like being given something like mentorship is something huge. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am without the advice and guidance and door opening of mentors. Yeah, I was going to actually ask if there's anyone that you consider a mentor and it sounds like the case is yes. Yeah, a lot. Um, you know, the, the biggest that comes to mind is actually someone who isn't very similar to me, <laughs> which is Rick, Rick Husick, um, the former associate publisher of High Times. Um, and we're very different, different in a lot of ways, um, but he has taught me so much and opened up so many doors. He was actually the first person who told me, who made me realize that the cannabis industry will exist. I remember when he told me in the High Times office, like, he's like, you know, if we win, there's going to be an industry that needs to be created to serve us consumers, right? And I was like, oh. Was that around the, was that around the 2010 efforts? Um, that was probably like 20, like when I very first got involved, like 20, probably 2008, 2009, maybe. Um, uh, so he's like, he literally was the person who made the light bulb go off from my head about the cannabis industry even existing in the first place. Um, and we've sort of evolved together from there. Um, but I have, I have other mentors too, but, he, but on the advocacy side, he's definitely been probably the biggest. That's great to hear. You know, I'm fortunate to have met Rick and um, such an interesting, fascinating, empathetic guy. All right. So I have a question that I'm planning to ask every guest. And it's this, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? So I kind of have a couple answers. Here. So the first thing, when I thought about this, the first thing I instinctively said in my head was poverty, because I think that's the worst thing happening in the world right now. That's equivalent to modern day slavery, I think, in terms of like how immoral it is and and how it should be like a major priority for everyone. Um, but then when you said ripple effects, um, I think like people's understanding um, of other people in society um, is probably the root cause of a lot of things, including um, poverty not being you know, prioritized like it should be. So. Uh, I think that is probably what I would change because it would have more ripple effects, including, you know, affecting poverty. Um, and, I, and I probably shouldn't mention earlier, but that's one of the, the things that I've tried to do um, with issues I've taken up are things like, you know, cannabis, drug policy, death with dignity, things that make people think differently um, with, you know, how you frame them or, or things like that. Yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting answer, you know, changing the way people think. Um, to me, that would probably do it, you know, if, if logic ruled, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, it's a very difficult thing to do, but we can find paths that start to carve our way there. Yep. I, I don't know if everyone's going to ask you this. So if you already even asked this and the audience already got this answer, you could ignore it. But what about you? <laughs> you know, considering that I'm going to be asking everyone this question, I haven't really thought about it a ton from my perspective, but I'm all, I also am kind of doing my own little study on this, right? And uh, seeing what all of these smart people I'm talking to are saying and perhaps forming my opinion from there. Um, you know, I will say that I think something very macro, like you're saying about changing the way people think 
would certainly be very valuable. But, you know, if you're going more specific, what you also said in terms of poverty, I you know, I think that people having what they need in order to function as the best yeah. versions of themselves and take themselves out of that survivor mode um, is something that could be incredibly impactful on everyone. And, you know, some of that was stolen from what Alex Hodera said in his answer, but uh, it, it definitely resonates with me. For sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You can almost even weave the two together because if people were able to not worry about, if people had what they needed and not worry about survival, then they would be able to think um, probably more empathetically. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Evan, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. And um, it's been great talking with you and look forward to future talks. Yeah, indeed. Thanks for having me. And if anybody wants to connect or thinks there's anything to collaborate on, I would be more than happy to schedule a call. Yeah, and you can find more information on Evan and his businesses at nissonco.com. That's N-I-S-O-N-C-O.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com. Thank you.